Good morning and welcome to Rising. We have a can't miss show today, so don't you dare touch that dial. Brianna, why don't you get us started off? Well, Robbie, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is in East Palestine, Ohio this morning, just hours after former President Donald Trump's visit. Buttigieg is just the, late, the second Biden official to step foot in East Palestine since the Norfolk Southern derailment on February 3rd. Here's the Daily Caller's Janine Tyer questioning Buttigieg on the matter a few days ago. Secretary, what do you have to say? Hi, how are you? Good. Jenny Tyer at the Daily Caller News Foundation. What do you have to say to the folks in Ohio, East Palestine, who are suffering right now? Well, I'd refer you to about a dozen interviews I've given today, and uh, if you'd like to arrange a conversation, make uh, sure to reach out to our press office, but I'm not have that conversation with you. Just walk you don't have a message here. for them? I do, and I shared it with the press many times today. I'd refer you to those comments. Would you mind sharing it with us? No, I'm going to refer you to the comments that I made to the press because uh, right now I'm taking some personal time and I'm walking down the street. Are you going down there? <clears throat> What's up? Are you going down there at all? Um, yeah, I am. When are you going? Uh, I'll share that uh, when I'm ready. Former President Trump accused the Biden administration of indifference and betrayal in its response to the chemical spill while in East Palestine. Now Trump had this to say to Joe Biden directly. What's your message to Joe Biden? Donald Trump also handed out Trump-branded water bottles to East Palestine residents. Uh, look, I think uh, this is a, probably a really good PR move for Donald Trump. Uh, I think he's, look, he's in his element a little bit. Um, there was another clip, actually, I wanted to play of him at a McDonald's, um, you know, speaking from the heart, saying that he, he knows McDonald's. He says he knows the, 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 uh, the, the menu better than uh, you guys do, and uh, he bought uh, McDonald's for the, uh, the, the firemen and so on. Let's play some of that. What's your specialty today? How are you today? Nice to meet you. Hello, everybody. That's a nice, beautiful-looking group of people. So I know this menu better than you do. Okay? I probably know it better than anybody in here. Uh, we're going to take care of the fire department. Okay. We're going to take care of the police department. So, so yeah, he's in his element. A man who's known to have a golden toilet and a golden escalator isn't necessarily uh, renowned for his ability to connect with the people personally. Say uh, at least experience uh, relate personally to what the pe people people have gone through. However, someone who also is famously very into McDonald's, this was like the perfect yeah. <laughs> way for him to uh, bridge that economic divide. And look, it was incredibly good optics. At the Biden administration, officials in the Biden administration or Biden himself had ample time to figure out how to get somebody, some representative to East Palestine. People have been calling for it. It seems like an easy win. And for, so for uh, former President Donald Trump to be able to show up before anybody from the Biden administration and to also come with, frankly, branded uh, supplies in a very Trumpian move, it, it, it's, a, it's a really, it's really, really, really strong optical move for him. Yeah, maybe, uh, you know, maybe he's being undercounted a little bit. He's... Uh, I've been saying it. Yeah, you have been <laughs> saying it. He's still got some, some juice in the tank. 
absolutely. And, and let's keep in mind, this was a heavily Trump district, as how they voted. So maybe the Biden administration was thinking it's not worth sending somebody there. Right. They're not going to get that same kind of warm reception. But of course, your job as president isn't to be president just of the districts that voted for you, you know, just of the parts of the country that voted for you. So even if there weren't, might may not have been people lined up down the street to greet Joe Biden in the same way that they did Donald Trump, someone needed to be there because in the void, Donald Trump looks like the person who cares about this community, mm -hmm. like the person who's more responsive, even without the resources of the entire government. Biden's in Europe. Government. Biden's Biden, in Europe right now. The contrast is even greater because yes. they're doing, a, you know, Ukraine anniversary stuff instead of worried about the domestic issues. And should Ron DeSantis <laughs> book, a, book a flight? <laughs> I mean, at this point, here's the thing. Timing matters. So yeah. everyone who does it now looks like a Johnny come lately, Absolutely. including Buttigieg. I mean, the timing of the Buttigieg Absolutely. visit feels extremely <laughs> like a cope, as the kids say. Like, it's it's doing it to, to save face following how successful mm -hmm. Donald Trump's visit was. I mean, it really did look like uh, some kind of like a presidential type procession as much as what something, you know, it can look like that in a small town with 5,000 people or whatever He clearly did not love being asked about this in that clip we played of the Daily Caller reporter uh, interviewing him or attempting to interview him. Uh, he, he he was not having that. Um, and I think asked, did he, was he asking for her picture at the very end of that? Uh, maybe, I think like it was that? contacted or some, some way to follow to up to see what she did with this she information. Or something. That's what I thought it was, but. Or also just to do press coverage to see what came of that video and what came of that interview and where it was posted and things like that. I mean, that's very reasonable. And look, I understand no one likes when they're off the clock, as it were, to yeah. be bombarded with questions, and he has been doing the press circuit. He has been available. The issue with Muddy hasn't been responsive to questions. The issue is that the answers that he's been giving are unsatisfactory, and people aren't looking for more opportunities to hear him kind of tread wa water on corporate well, media sites. I know people on They're the left. for him to actually say, when are you going, and to explain why he hasn't been there I know yet. that people on the left even have criticized him, though, for just taking a lot of time off um, during sure. his tenure. Sure. Uh, a lot of personal time. And I know he went, you know, he, he adopted him and his, his husband adopted. Um, I think the, the babies had serious health problems, so that's, you know, that's sad, and that's obviously very difficult. Uh, he, he wrote about that. But, you know, there's, a, like, a national emergency going on on several, <laughs> several fronts having to do with transportation. Yeah, and, and, and uh, it is worth saying, there has been a tone to some of the criticism of Pete Buttigieg. And I say this as someone who very much is not a fan of the man's politics and thinks he was one of the worst for the left candidates in the Democratic primary race of 2020. No love lost there. There was a tone to some of the commentary, especially in some of the segments Tucker Carlson has done, where there was a choice to use graphics of him and his husband, him on a, on a swing, that, that seemed to be not verbally, but in terms of imagery, marrying a critique of him or imagery of him as, as a gay man with some of the substantive critique of him as a politician that I find to be very distasteful mm. and absolutely do not support. And it's a shame because some of the substantive criticism is very substantive and is worth endorsing, but I have trouble doing it if it's being done in a way that seems to also be tacitly taking a hit at the fact that he is a gay man, he is a man taking paternity leave in a culture where there's all of this uh, toxic, you know, attack on masculinity. Rihanna can't be on a magazine cover with her husband if she's in front of him because it means it's the end of manhood. Well, and all I don't, of this but stuff. again, I don't think the, I don't think the criticism of him for taking paternity leave is. It's it's an anti it's a homophobic attack. It's that he's gone. He was gone for a lot of time during a very 
Right, but some... Like if he can't, look, there, if he there, can't, no. if he can't do the job, he shouldn't be doing the no, job. No, there was definitely people who were attacking him on the basis that a man shouldn't take paternity leave. That it was ridiculous well, for I, him to be taking I'm paternity sure leave. I'm sure some people made that accusation. Point blank period. So that's, that that's all I'm saying. Fucker, to the extent but. that there's some of that imagery and some of that tone into the discussion, I just want to be clear that I don't endorse that in the least. However, um, I think that ultimately he is right to be criticized for doing what was an easy layup. People who wanted him to snap his fingers and solve inflation or some of the supply chain issues that were happening during COVID, maybe that was more unrealistic. There are a lot of factors at play. There was a global crisis, et cetera. But him simply getting on a plane and right. taking an hour flight to Ohio, that, yeah. That's completely on him. I, this is clearly this is not an easy job. Yeah. I think he wanted an easy job uh, yeah. to to advance his own political careers. He is probably very likely to make another run for the White House at some point. So he wanted something to pad his resume a little bit, and uh, he's probably frustrated that this is not it's not working out that way because there's been a lot of <laughs> there's been a lot of issues to be addressed as transportation secretary, and there's a lot of criticism even again even from people within the Democratic coalition about how it's all been handled and so he's probably <laughs> frustrated that he's not gonna he can't just add this to his resume and yeah. and run again. Well, you, I mean it, it's gonna it hurt, it's gonna hurt him in fact if he tries to run do you think it's too late for Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley to visit East Palestine yeah. and or do you think just because they are not national politicians that they don't have the standing to really go there in the same way that Donald Trump as a former president had the standing to go there absolutely I think they just have to let Trump have this one um, and hope it's, uh, you know, people will have a short memory. There'll be something else. There'll be another plenty of opportunities for, you know, Ron DeSantis or I guess Nikki Haley. I don't, I'm not giving her much of a shot. We're actually, and she got attacked. I think we're going to talk about it later in the show. She got heavily attacked by Tucker Carlson in a recent monologue, which shows, illustrates the point I've been making, that she really is not in step with where the conservative movement is now, which where conservative media is, et cetera. So I don't, I'm not very optimistic about her chances. Ron DeSantis, I am much more optimistic about his chances, and he has plenty of opportunities to, you know, recapture the spotlight. But for now, this was definitely a win for Donald Trump. All right. Are we going to see Ron DeSantis put those white boots on and <laughs> his famous white boots and the take white boots. to East <laughs> or some other national disaster? We'll keep covering this story. More rising right after this. Tell me what's on your radar, Brianna. Well, Robbie, it seems like no matter how much elected Democrats and their allies in the corporate media duck the story, allegations that the United States may have been responsible for sabotaging the Nord Stream pipelines are not going away. Tuesday, former CIA agent turned activist Ray McGovern and esteemed economist and public policy analyst Jeffrey Sachs addressed the U.N. Security Council during its hearing on the Nord Stream bombing. The hearing took place at the request of Russia, which called for a special United Nations commission to determine who was responsible for the Nord Stream terrorist attack. And Cy Hirsch's reporting, which cites an anonymous source for evidence that the U.S. was involved. Now, during the hearing, Jeffrey Sachs summarized Hirsch's report and pointed out that the investigations conducted so far show no evidence of Russian involvement. Involvement, rather, and that moreover, Russia lacks the motive shared by the United States and some of its NATO allies. He also pointed out that the sabotage required a level of technical skill and subterfuge that points to a state level or, or national actor. Also of note, he called out Sweden for not sharing the results of its investigation last fall into the pipeline explosion with the global community. Let's take a listen to some of that. The destruction of the Nord Stream pipelines on September 26, 2022 constitutes an act of international terrorism 
and represents a threat to the peace. It is the responsibility of the UN Security Council to take up the question of who might have carried out the act in order to bring the perpetrator to international justice, to pursue compensation for the damaged parties, and to prevent future such actions. He also had this to say. Contain around 200,000 pipes. The pipelines sit on the sea floor. Destroying a pipeline of heavy rolled steel encased in concrete at depths of 70 to 90 meters requires a highly advanced technology for transportation of the explosives, diving to install the explosives, and detonation. To do so undetected in the exclusive economic zones of Denmark and Sweden adds greatly to the complexity of the operation. As a number of senior officials have publicly confirmed, an action of this sort must have been carried out by a state-level actor. Only a handful of state-level actors have both the technical capacity and access to the Baltic Sea to have carried out this action. Include the United States, Russia, the United Kingdom, Poland, Norway, Germany, Denmark, and Sweden, either individually or in some combination. Ukraine lacks the necessary technologies as well as access to the Baltic Sea. And finally, listen to this clip. A recent report by the Washington Post revealed that the intelligence agencies of the NATO countries have privately concluded that there is no evidence whatsoever that Russia carried out this action. This also comports with the fact that Russia had no obvious motive to carry out this act of terrorism on its own critical infrastructure. Indeed, Russia is likely to bear considerable expenses to repair the pipelines. Three countries have reportedly carried out investigations of the Nord Stream terrorism, Denmark, Germany, and Sweden. These countries presumably know much more about the circumstances of the terrorist attack. Sweden in particular has perhaps the most to tell the world about the crime scene which its divers investigated. Yet instead of sharing this information globally, Sweden has kept the results of its investigation secret from the rest of the world. Sachs called on the UN Security Council to look into this information. Sweden has refused to share its findings with Russia and turned down a joint investigation with Denmark and Germany. In the interest of global peace, the UN Security Council should require these countries to immediately turn over the results of their investigations to the UN Security Council. Now, in his remarks, former CIA agent Ray McGovern called out the media for smearing Seymour Hersh and for not covering his report or even just covering the denials by the government in response to his report. He also called out the CIA for its record of lying to the public. I am a friend of Seymour Hersh, and so I will not uh, opine myself. I will cite a very distinguished former U.S. ambassador and also assistant secretary of defense. These are the words he said about Seymour Hersh. Hersh attracts whistleblowers because he has a perfect record of protecting their identities and accurately publishing what they reveal after due diligence, despite the government denials and slanderous attacks that invariably follow. His reputation is such that people of conscience seek him out. People 
of conscience. As a U.S. Army officer and as a CIA employee, I took an oath, one oath. It was to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Some of us took that oath seriously. And let's cut to just a little bit more of McGovern's remarks. It was two weeks ago. Has the New York Times mentioned Cy Hirsch's article? Uh, has it even reported the denials? No, not yet. This is quite, the Germans would say, merkwürdig. This is very, very remarkable. As uh, Jeffrey Sachs has already said, the CIA spokesperson said, the claim is completely and utterly false, quote, end quote. Whoa. Now, I have to confess, being an alumnus of the CIA, that our PR people, our public relations people, do not have a very good record. No one wants to go back 20 years to Colin Powell's speech before this Security Council. Now, after McGovern and Sachs gave their remarks, the other Security Council member members gave brief statements. NATO allies like the U.S., the U.K., and France all made statements which claimed the hearing was merely Russia's effort at distracting the public from focusing on its invasion of Ukraine at the one-year anniversary of said invasion. But let's be clear why we are really here in the Council today. Later this week, as we near the one-year anniversary the General Assembly will debate the impact of Russia's illegal and full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Today's meeting is a blatant attempt to distract from this. As the world unites this week to call for a just and secure peace in Ukraine, consistent with the UN Charter, Russia desperately wants to change the subject. This is not the first time Russia has used its seat on this council to amplify conspiracy theories from the Internet. We wish it would apply the same urgency shown over the past three days instead to the myriad credible reports of human rights abuses and violations of international humanitarian law caused by its invading forces. The U.S. and some of its NATO allies also made statements that suggested full faith and confidence in the ongoing uh, investigation. Let's take a listen. Let me state clearly and plainly, accusations the United States was involved in this act of sabotage are completely false. The United States was not involved at all. Competent authorities in Denmark, Germany, and Sweden are investigating these incidents in a comprehensive, transparent, and impartial manner. Resources for the UN investigations should be preserved for cases when states are unwilling or unable to investigate genuinely. But of course, as Sachs pointed out, regardless of one's position on Russia's invasion, a state-directed terrorist attack on energy pipelines with global energy and environmental consequences, of course, is of global relevance. And it is perhaps odd to frame a desire to get to the bottom of who carried out that attack as pretextual 
when that question is of such obvious importance. Moreover, no one at the hearing addressed Russia's concerns about the lack of transparency or the potential conflict of interest between the people who are currently, the nations that are currently doing the investigation and their potential involvement. Russia's representative was critical of the ongoing investigation by Denmark, Sweden, and Germany, saying that it lacked transparency and that they, quote, seek to simply cover tracks and stand behind their American brothers. Russia had asked to participate in the investigation and was rebuffed. And Sweden has already declined to share the results of the investigation it undertook last year with the general global public. Hirsch's report claims that some senior officials in Denmark and Sweden had to have been briefed in general about the saboteur's diving activity in the, air, in the area so that the activity could be kept secret if detected. His account significantly implicates the Norwegians, who he attributes to offering, the plan, offering up the plan to time the event to that annual June NATO exercise in the Baltic Sea. If true, the obvious conflict of interest would give significant support to Russia's push to have an independent UN investigation that's not carried out by potential co-conspirators. But while China joined Russia in its call for a UN resolution to establish an impartial commission to investigate what happened, no vote was taken at the meeting. Most of the non-permanent members of the Security Council merely called for the existing investigations to continue. Meanwhile, activist Jose Vega continues to be one of the only people, including journalists, willing or able to ask elected members of Congress directly about the allegations raised in Cy Hirsch's reporting. After confronting New York Representative Richie Torres last week, he confronted House Leader Hakeem Jeffries yesterday, asking him if he's willing to demand an inquiry into, again, who is responsible for the Nord Stream pipeline sabotage. Let's take a listen to some of that. The UN Security Council had a meeting yesterday and Ray McGovern spoke to it. He is a former member of the CIA and he testified in support of Seymour Hersh's article on the United States bombing Nord Stream pipeline. If it is proven that the United States bombed the Nord Stream 2 pipeline as has been asserted by Seymour Hersh and his article, will you call for the United States to acknowledge and admit that that was an act of war against Germany and Russia. And I'm asking this because this may be the only way to prevent the rest of us from being killed in a thermonuclear war. And I don't want to be fried. Don't you think the media should be reporting on whether or not this is true? And don't you think you should be inquiring into whether or not this is true? Well, thank you for the question. Uh, one, I've got no information to suggest uh, that the United States was involved in bombing the Nord Stream pipeline. Because he would have, you would have, you would have been, you weren't briefed on it. Sir, sir, you got your chance to ask yes, a question. So you got to give me an opportunity to respond. You weren't given information because he explicitly says you weren't briefed on it. Shouldn't you inquire? So here's what I'll say about, I think, you know, President Biden's leadership generally as it relates to the Ukraine and Russia. We committed an act of war. Now, for one, many might find Jeffrey's response that he has no information to suggest the U.S. was involved to be unsatisfactory. For one, evidence points to a state actor, as Jeffrey Sachs explained. There are only a limited number of viable nations with the requisite skill, motive, and access to carry this out. The U.S. is among them. Moreover, international consensus is that there is no evidence of Russian involvement. And unlike the U.S., Russia benefited from the pipeline and was invested in its functioning. So was Germany. The U.S. is among the most likely culprits for those reasons. And even if the U.S. wasn't involved, 
Jeffrey's apparent indifference to uncovering who, in fact, was responsible for this act of terrorism is somewhat surprising. Now, interestingly, in his remarks before the U.N. Security Council, Ray McGovern noted that he grew up practicing duck-and-cover drills, as though those things would actually protect you from a nuclear explosion. And he ruminated on what it meant to have come full circle, to once again be worried about the threat of nuclear war. So while Vega's ex expressed concern about nuclear conflict might seem exaggerated to some, history might prove him to be the only person in that room acting with the exigency the moment demands. The question remains. Will there be any pressure at all on the U.S. government or international bodies like the U.N. to truly answer the question, who is responsible for one of the most significant acts of eco-terrorism in history? Non-NATO countries on the Security Council, including Mozambique and Ecuador, highlighted the environmental consequences of the attack, an underreported aspect of the story. Nord Stream sabotage was responsible for what is probably the single largest methane emission ever recorded, up to 500,000 tons. Isn't this worth investigating? It is absolutely worth investigating. And you have to, I mean, you can't help but be concerned that the reason U.S. officials aren't so interested in investigating it is because the U.S. is culpable. That is what everyone who has an open mind and is just not you, you know, going to myopically believe whatever the U.S. tells them to believe, that's what everyone is thinking. Um, and and, on, and if, there, if we didn't do it, if the U.S. is not responsible, and to be clear, I think there is still some possibility that the U.S. was not involved, and, and I, I accept Seymour Hersh's reporting. I think it's a very important contribution. It helps clarify potentially what happened. I'm, I'm, but I'm not ruling anything out. I need to learn more. Of course. But if you don't think the U.S. is responsible, and you want to prove that it's not responsible, you need to investigate this. You right. need to call for an investigation. Right. Being, being defiantly against investigating it is itself suspicious. Yeah, the, the rationale that we're given at the U.N. Security Council hearing, it's like, Okay, even if you think that Russia is only bringing this up now and only talking about it with the exigency mm -hmm. that it's talking about it because it wants to distract from the one-year anniversary of its invasion, fine. These aren't mutually exclusive things. Call a million and one hearings to condemn Russia and its behavior, but also do this investigation into what happened with Nord Stream. If you were accused of a crime, you know, one of, one of the things a, a public defender can, or a defense attorney mm -hmm. can do is to try to find who actually did accuse, uh, did, did commit the crime in order to get their client off. The idea that there's this kind of aloof disinterest when people like Hakeem Jeffries, you know, are confronted by this, the um, Ricky, Richie Torres confrontation, the attitude of the American representative on the Security Council, it, it, it kind of has this whiff of, you know, you can't make me do it. Nobody cares. Like it, it, we, we're gonna, we're gonna have faith and confidence in an investigation that's carried out by countries, some of whom yeah. have also been accused of being involved in the sabotage themselves. I mean, nobody would stand for this in any other case. And it is very curious that there is very little appetite in the American media to discuss this, or of course, even to cover what happened at the National Security Council. When Biden says something like. There's not going to be a Nord Stream, or we're going to take care of Nord Stream. It's not going to be a thing if Russia invades, and then Nord Stream gets blown up. People are going to wonder right. what we did right. about it. And, and um, Jeffrey Sachs runs through that whole mm -hmm. kind of narrative, as we've discussed it and laid it out here on the show several times in his remarks. It's, you know, it's worth watching the whole thing's about an hour and a half, but the remarks by um, uh, Jeffrey Sachs uh, and McGovern are relatively short at the beginning of the conference. I, there was reporting, you know, the Washington Post did report on the fact of this hearing having happened. Um, 
but there does not seem to be much in the way of a media push for there to be any kind of independent investigation. Everyone seems to be satisfied with the idea that America claims it didn't do it. The reports say that Russia has—there's no evidence that Russia did it. And we're just going to leave this up to, gosh, who knows? Who knows who did one of the biggest ecological disasters <laughs> in, in recent history? <laughs> who knows? What a mystery. <laughs> who can say? <laughs> uh, thank you very much for that, Brianna. We'll have more Rising right after this. Yesterday, President Biden met with leaders of the Bucharest Nine, the U.S.'s Eastern European allies, as well as NATO Secretary Jan Stoltenberg to, quote, reiterate the United States' ironclad commitment to security of the alliance. Yesterday, in an interview with Bloomberg, Stoltenberg slammed Vladimir Putin over his, quote, reckless pullout from the New START weapons treaty. This is a, a reckless decision because we need arms control uh, and we need transparency. Uh, so uh, we call on Russia to uh, to uh, reconsider and to and to respect and to and to fully uh, implement the new START agreement, including the inspection regime, which is extremely important. Uh, and then, of course, we will closely monitor what they actually do. Meanwhile, this week, Chinese officials confirmed they seek to play a role in negotiations, hopefully bringing an end to the war in Ukraine. The Chinese foreign minister added, quote, at the same time, we urge relevant countries to immediately stop adding fuel to the fire, stop shifting blame to China and stop hyping up the discourse of Ukraine today, Taiwan tomorrow. These comments come after reports say Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky warned against Chinese interference in the war this week, noting that should China back Russia, it would mean, quote, world war. Here's what Tulsi Gabbard had to say on the matter while on Tucker Carlson tonight. Well, you, you heard it from Zelensky himself talking about the consequences of World War III. The thing is, he has made very clear that that's where he thinks we are already, that we are in World War III. Ukraine is the tip of the spear. And this is how he justifies demanding, making demands of the United States and all of these NATO countries to equip him with all of the weapons and aircraft and tanks that the United States and NATO have to go and fight this war that we are in against Russia. The scary thing to me, Tucker, is to hear people like Zelensky, to hear Democrats and Republicans in the United States Congress and Biden administration officials speak so calmly and with a straight face about World War III, exactly. how would it be won? How would we respond to the use of tactical nuclear weapons? What are our options in this battlefield? Forgetting what Ronald Reagan said, when he said a nuclear war cannot be won and therefore should never be fought. Yeah, I kind of agree with Tulsi there. There does <laughs> seem to be something very disproportionate about the way that Zelensky is talking about this, principally because he is not, in fact, in NATO. That is the whole point. Ukraine is not in NATO. So the idea that, you know, Chinese involvement or any escalation of people joining with Russia in whatever way and to support its efforts would necess necessarily draw in other people in the world, other countries in the world on the other side. Yeah. That would be true, again, if Ukraine were in NATO and the obligations of NATO were imposed upon other members of, of that organization. That's not the case. That's largely what we're all fighting about right now, right. that that isn't the case. So it is. it does feel like Zelensky thinks he's the tip of the spear, like it's the tail wagging the dog when he says something like, if China were to get involved, I'm warning you, China, don't get involved or else we're going to be in World War III. Because what that means is that America would be engaging with China. And Zelensky is obviously not in a position to be committing America to World War III. Of course not. And it's 
frustrating and a little alarming that the Biden administration seems to be offering no pushback to that, is, is willing to be kind of slowly walked into potentially World War III by Zelensky. I mean, he, Zelensky's visited, Biden visited there, and you know, he's, he, our, our entire—and it's, and it's bipartisan. It's very bipartisan, in fact. Our entire government, many aspects of our entire government, are, are fully committed to walking us exactly down that road that could get us to World War III. And, it, you know, it's not because we're unsympathetic to the Ukrainian plight um, or—, or overly sympathetic to Russia. Again, Vladimir Putin started this. It was a horrible thing to do. I, I take Stoltenberg's point that this is, this is, this is dangerous, and we, we wish Putin would reconsider the actions, including um, START and all that, and, and the war itself, that could risk nuclear annihilation. Yes, it's fine to say all that, but ultimately, we don't have total control over what Vladimir Putin does. All we have control in the U.S. is control over what Joe Biden does. And he should think about whether his actions are similarly taking us down this very dangerous path that no one is actually, no one actually wants, no one is prepared for, no one is actually willing to do it, right? No one really thinks we should have World War III if that's what we have to do because of Ukraine. Maybe Zelensky sincerely believes that. I'm not even sure he does. We yeah. certainly should not sincerely believe that. Anyone in our government who does believe that should be removed or voted out or whatever it takes, because that's not—the American people don't want that. It'd yeah, be crazy. It's certainly not. And it's worth noting, just on the, the START treaty aspect of this, there is a, a pattern of language being used to describe it that I've noticed. This word reckless keeps coming back in a way. You know, mm -hmm. Sometimes you see words that are routinely used in journalistic reports and among um, uh, state officials that suggest that this is a kind of a, uh, I don't want to make an overly broad claim, but there, there might be like a PR aspect of this going on. This word reckless, reckless, reckless. Well, in fact, the treaty, to be clear, is suspended. Russia did not withdraw from the treaty. It, the, right. the inspection aspect of it, where um, these uh, treaty treaty members have inspections of what their nuclear arsenals are and, and those kinds of things, has been suspended during COVID. And what Russia is saying is that it will not unsuspend um, that inspection, partly because they feel like the other end of the bargain isn't being held up as the United States is engaging in a proxy war against it. Why should I let you then come and look at all of my mm -hmm. technical specifics? We have, you know, the United States freaking out about spy balloons, weather balloons, a combination of science projects and potentially, you know, authentic spyware floating over the country. But now is saying, well, why won't Russia, as we're engaging in a proxy war with it, let us kind of come and look at what's in, right. inside the kabuki? So that's what's going on there. And it is interesting that this is being framed as a kind of reckless escalation on the part of Russia with, again, just absolutely no reporting on the events that precipitated this or what the Russian perspective is. And if we want to end the conflict, even if you don't agree with the Russian perspective, it's mm -hmm. critically important to understand what's motivating their behavior. Right. Yeah, absolutely. They, they understandably feel like, they're, well, they're not going to go along with this anymore because we are engaged in this proxy war with them. Now, they are—Putin Putin takes a lot of blame for getting us to the point where the proxy war is taking place. Now, of course, we can you know, go and, beyond and that. And so does the NATO with the expansion to, of right, NATO. And right. so here we are, round and round and round. Right. Um, and this is how conflicts yeah. get entrenched. This is—I mean, yeah. this is how we, we get out of—we we get into a place where neither side 
wants to end it, and people are just, I mean, so many people are dying on both sides of this conflict. Ukraine's being destroyed, and uh, a Russian loss of life is tremendous, actually. Eastern and Europe. And they can keep going at it. And you know, we talked about this in our interview today with The Cy energy Hirsch, crisis. Everybody should should watch. Um, but he pointed out that the they're paying two, three, four, five times energy costs as a consequence of the Nord Stream pipeline having been exploded. And every everyone is paying for this. Mm -hmm. And back home, people are very conscious of the fact that there are priorities that are being expressed by Joe Biden choosing to be in Ukraine and Poland at the same time that someone like Donald Trump is on the ground in East Palestine. What is that going to mean electorally inside of the United States? And what is it going to mean for the broader confidence of the global community in the United States as a, you know, a, a, a bringer of democracy or, a, a, you know, a someone to look up to on the national stage right. if it is unwilling to engage with its role in right. precipitating these kind of crises. Will it feel like we're the bringers of democracy when people, you know, don't have enough heating to, to, to be comfortable during winter when their food prices are out of whack? And that, you know, that comes back to us and that does indirectly, but it affects people in the, those, in, on those same areas prices, energy, et cetera, here in the U.S. And, uh, and people are feeling the pain everywhere. Yeah, and, and this, this is an important point, again, that Seymour Hirsch just brought up with us. It's that there's a world where, you know, we're talking about our allies and protecting our allies and how much we care about Ukraine. The argument for US, the U.S. being involved in the, blowing, in the sabotage of Nord Stream is in part that it's Germany obviously has a benefit. Germany obviously benefits from it's been what eleven billion dollars on this pipeline. It's cheap gas from Russia, and that is something that's been bought. That relationship, mm -hmm. that ability to have that relation, that energy relationship, has been bothering the United States for a long time. The Nord Stream one was turned off prior to the pipelines being sabotaged, and Nord Stream two wasn't in effect, but it had been on pause. A world where you actually trusted your allies and were acting in good faith, you trust the fact that they have accepted because of the United States' interests, not their own, mind you, but the United States' interests are pressure from the United States, that they are willing to stop taking Russian oil because of this conflict. But if Seymour Hersh's reporting is accurate, that's the United States basically saying, that's not good enough for me. I don't want you to ever have this leverage back over the United States. I don't want to have to engage with mm -hmm. you with any kind of real equality or parity as a partner on the world stage. I'm just going to take this into my own hands and blow it up. And what that means for America as a world leader and, again, a democracy bringer and someone who respects international law, all of that rhetoric goes right out the window if it is proven to be true that the U.S. was uh, played a hand in the Nord Stream sabotage. Yes, that's an excellent point. Uh, well, we will continue to follow this, and we'll have more rising in just a minute. Please stay with us. Legendary reporter Seymour Hirsch is here with us today to talk about his bombshell report on who blew up Nord Stream. His report uh, pointing f fingers at the U.S. involvement in the destruction of the pipeline. He says the CIA blew it up and lied about it, and he's here with us to expand on his reporting and respond to criticisms. Great to see you, Mr. Hirsch. Thank you so much. Sure. Let's start with my criticism about what you just said. Go, I didn't go say for the it. CIA lied about it. I said the White House, the, pre the president of the United States and the White House is lying about it, but that's okay. Both of them. Let's so, go. So tell us about the, the process of reporting the story. Uh, you have one uh, so, uh, anonymous uh, source, a source whose, whose information is not is known to you, but is not uh, identified in the actual uh, report. Can you tell us anything about that, that, that source or maybe a documentation they were able to provide to you that made you confident oh. in what that person was telling you was accurate? Oh, if I did, I'd just be out of business. 
you know, and I've been doing this for a long time with unnamed sources. It, it all depends on where you, when you do it, when you don't do it. When I was at the New York Times, some of the great stories, uh, many of the, the stories that were very important, or at least generated a lot of news. In one case, the congressional hearings, uh, the church hearings into the CIA. I, I had no, no name sources, but that time, you know, that was then and this is now. So now there's a lot of criticism. Uh, and I understand that. Um, um, uh, I, I can't talk about my source other than if, if you read the story carefully, uh, um, uh, as I, I'm sure you did. Um, uh, I, the person that's talking to me, uh, if, you, if you're trying to figure out who he is, he's never, he or she is never in a meeting. They're just describing what they know. And that's not uh, inadvertent. That's, you know, that's just the way you protect people. And uh, because a lot of people could know things, um, it wasn't all CIA. It was a, a joint group that was set up at the direction of Jake Sullivan, the, um, uh, the national security advisor. And in a nutshell, I'll just tell you what happened. Um, it's, it's the fall of 2021. The Russians are already, the, the, the Putin's, but let's just stick with Putin. Putin is already lining up his troops in, in Belarus. Uh, and it's clear that he's probably going to go. And the, there's a meeting convened. Uh, Jake convenes a meeting, um, uh, I would assume, at the, at, the, at the request of the president, uh, Joe Biden. And he brings in a bunch of high-level people from the community. You know, the NSA, CIA, uh, uh, State Department, Joint Chiefs of Staff, what you will, Treasury Department, they, they supply the money. And they meet in a secure, very secure room in the executive office building. Everybody in Washington knows what that is. It's on the compound right next to the uh, White House itself, where most of the offices are. And the issue is uh, they start in December of 2021. And the question they have, and this is a, 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 work, a word of art, is um, uh, <laughs> this is language that is known inside the community, whether what we want to produce, this group, are actions and recommendations that are reversible or irreversible. If they're reversible, we're talking about sanctions, et cetera. If they're irreversible, you're talking about kinetic stuff. And eventually, it, over the next couple of weeks, it emerged that the issue was, of course, the decision was going to be uh, something uh, kinetic. And it eventually, I'm talking about by January, uh, there was a fix on the pipelines could be it. We could hit the pipelines. The worry was always, as, as most well, most people don't know, Nord Stream One. There are two pipelines that go supply gas, really a very low price and a huge amount of gas to industrial Germany. The first pipeline began in 2011. It was called Nord Stream One, and historically, going back to the Kennedy years, and certainly in the Bush Cheney years, and certainly in this government, and when Joe Biden was in the was vice president, he chaired a group on this. The worry we always had about Russia, always with its great resources of natural gas, uh, they, they have uh, from way, they just have tons of it, gas and, um, and, and oil. And um, uh, the worry was that, that Russia was weaponizing this gas. It was using it to get leverage in West Germany, West, Western Europe and Germany. And that was always something that was a problematical uh, for us. We, didn't, we, we wanted to keep Russia from having energy power. And so, and so the same thing happened in this White House and the meeting, the idea was, what do you do with it? And so one of the options the group came up with, they said, we can blow them. 
Uh, I don't know how far they were, but this was obviously by mid-January of 2022. And by this time, the Russians have as many as 100,000 troops coming. If they're not there then, they're there within a few weeks. They're going. And, and uh, we know it. And uh, to the amazement of the group that was, um, had been assembled, and uh, I assure you that the president and others didn't have hands-on feeling about it. You don't do it that way. They're, they're always isolated. Uh, uh, they had began their, uh, they, they said it can be done. And to their amazement, Victoria Newland, the Undersecretary of State, in last, last, in, uh, last January, um, again, when Russia hasn't come, she gives, she, at a news conference, she said, I assure you if, if, this, if the Russians come, Nord Stream 2 will not exist. It's a brand new, it was the second pipe. Nord Stream 2 was the second gas pipe that was finished, uh, built, it took 10, eight, 10 years, billions of dollars. It was ready to go by early to late 2021, and the Germans sanctioned it. They cut it down. It was full with gas, but the Germans, they didn't pump because the German government, obviously under pressure from us, um, um, froze it. So it was just sitting there full of gas on, on uh, 750 miles, one pipeline, 700, they both were 750 miles or so, all the way from, uh, from a corner of Russia near St. Uh, uh, Leningrad, St. Petersburg all the way down to the tip of uh, a city in, in um, Western, I think, of uh, uh, uh -huh. Germany. I get my map mixed up all the time. Anyway, um, it, was, it just was, uh, for the Germans, it was manna. It, there was so much gas, even on Nord Stream 1, that the German uh, um, uh, German companies that had an interest, uh, there was, Nord Stream was controlled by um, uh, uh, Russian oligarchs, Gazprom. They own 51% of it, which means that a lot of the money was kicked back into the Russian uh, uh, treasury. Of course it was, billions every year. But 49% of the pipeline was owned by four Western companies and they all had right. stock. And those Western companies, there was enough gas for them to sell it to other uh, mm -hmm. people dealing in, in, in home gas heating, et cetera, uh, downstream they call it. It was that much, it was a, it was a bonanza. And the second pipeline was ready to go, and that would have been um, made the Russian ability in the eyes of the White House, and not only this White House, but other White Houses all along, weaponiz weaponization of the gas. Yeah. So she then, well, for reasons but... unknown, at a news conference said, if Russia goes, uh, if 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 Russia attacks Nord Stream two, by one way or another, I don't. That's very close to the exact language. Will be. Will will not go, Mr. Hirsch. What, what, what you're describing, I think, is the circumstances that show that the incentives here point really against Russia. And of course, the investigations, the independent investigations that have already taken place, have found no, um, you know, evidence that Russia was at all involved. And in fact, as you've described, there's plenty. Uh, there's a conflict of interest that you've described between Germany and, and Western Europe, who are, could be the beneficiaries of, of Russian, of cheap Russian oil, and the United States, who has these broader. Um, security concerns in terms of its own proxy war with Russia. So I want to get back to, if we can, this issue of the people who are criticizing you on the basis of the source. And I wondered if you could give us any more insight into what you, not, not any obviously uh, facts about who the source is or, or any identifying information, but what made you feel confident about the source's firsthand knowledge 
uh, and the accuracy of the knowledge that the source presented to you. Obviously, there's a great deal of um, kind of factual detail about how strategically the plan was carried out. But in terms of the source representing, confirming that the source was who they represented, that they were in a position where they would have had firsthand knowledge of the events that they described to you, um, can you tell us anything about what assured you that the source was accurately representing their firsthand knowledge? I've been in this business with sources like this for 50 years. Um, when I first did Beli, uh, there was, you know, overwhelmingly disapproval of what I wrote. And most of the stories I wrote that were controversial has always been attacked on the, on the you know, it's, it's easy to get rid of something on the basis of anonymity. And so um, uh, you have to understand um, there's, there's no alternatives. Either people, the people I've known inside um, have one thing in common, and, and mil whether military or civilian, and that is they really understand that they've taken their oath of office to, not to not to the their boss, not to the general or admiral, uh, and not to not to the president, but to the constitution. And those are people that, when they get troubled by things that are going on, have talked to me. And that's been going on. I've done this for 50 years. So on the and uh, I'm not interested in committing suicide, and I certainly knew. The uh, uh, I, I can't. I, you're getting me. I don't even want to talk about what I know. I wrote the story, and I'll you know I'll give you a hypothetical if you want. I'll give you a question to ask. Sure. You know, next time somebody at the White House briefing who doesn't want to be doesn't want to be called again, uh, called on again for the next two months, why don't they ask the president, hey, or the White House or the White House whatever the press spokesman whoever it is there, why don't they ask him, say, you know what, this happened. In September the 26th, last year, and um, uh, uh, nobody knew what did happen. But four days later, uh, Jake Sullivan gave a, pre a, a briefing, and he was asked about it. And he said, well, he, he read, you know, the, the, somebody asked if they thought Russia did it. And he said the usual things. Nobody likes Russia in that White House. And, and certainly in that CIA, as far as I can tell from the spokesman. And um, what he said is, well, there's two countries are looking at it. Uh, Sweden and Norway, and we'll see what happens with their investigation. Uh, it's not Sweden and Norway, Sweden and Denmark. The Norwegians who were very involved with us haven't said, have said nothing. And so a month later, sure enough, the, the, Swedes, the Swedes and the Danes issued a report saying that after they studied it, they concluded that indeed something had happened under the water. There had been an explosion. That was the extent of their investigation. So what the White House has, what the president has, if he really wants to know, He's got something called the Office of National Intelligence, which is the highest level office, uh, oversees all of the intelligence in the United States government. And they have an office of uh, the, the ONI, they have an incredibly good, competent uh, head of, uh, of intelligence there. He could have, what the phrase they use inside is task those people to do a study. If he chose also to really dig, he could have asked the CIA, which has a director of intelligence that does terrific work, I will tell you, very solid stuff. He could have asked the CIA to do a study. And there's also a secret, another third intelligence group that nobody talks much about. When we have a covert operation, an, an agent that's an, an operation like this that's undercover, they have their own intelligence. And we're talking about really old source. If you have people overseas doing stuff uh, that are tricky, you want to really protect them. And so why don't you ask if they ever ask the community for a study? Because I'll tell you what the answer is. They never did. And so why don't you think they did? Well, and, and, and Mr. Hirsch, 
Uh, how would you respond to uh, there's been some reporting I've seen that the ships you said that, that were used, the Norwegian ships, there's some conflicting GPS data showing, uh, suggesting that they were not actually in the, the area. How would you respond to that part of the criticism? It's called, um, um, it's OSINC, you know, it's uh, uh, open, open source intelligence, which is a big part of the community. They started that 40 years ago. In other words, they would put out a report and the, the CIA, this is after World War II when they were first going and discovered that a lot of what they reported was in, in the open sources. And so if you're, in a, if you're doing a covert operation and you're talking about people that uh, open source relies on signals. It doesn't have photographs of the ships there. They rely on signals. And they also rely on airplanes that um, every airplane has a transponder, and um, which is sort of an IDF. It gives us, it lets everybody know where they are at all times. Well, if you watched, if you read the paper carefully, when the president went to um, Kiev, uh, when his plane was flying, I think, in the Pol from, into Poland, guess what they did? It was in the newspaper. They turned off their transponder. And so I will tell you the trouble with open source intelligence, I've said this to a few people, including one of the guys writing it, but you know, when, when, you're, when you're really into computer and computer analysis, um, uh, the first thing you do in an operation like that is you use open source as a cover, helps you. You invent boats that aren't there. You have airplanes that turned off transponder, which means you can't be seen. It's really as simple as that. Mm. They're, they're, I'm being also attacked. They're claiming that the boat, somebody claimed that the boat uh, the class of the boat wasn't there, but we can, the guys who know what they're doing, they can turn everything topsy-turvy. They can create boats, signals of boats. So it's, that's what you do before a mission like that. That's the answer to it. It's really very simple. If those people had asked anybody in the community, they would have told you the first thing you do is manipulate the, the, the ongoing intelligence. In fact, what they had up there was the same plane that the president had when he was in Kiev. It's called a a river joint is a, uh, basically a national security agency, uh, Air Force wing. It's a, a, a old 707 that flies on the border of Russia, uh, collecting radar signals. They had, uh, the president had what is in the paper, they had uh, a river joint uh, surveillance plane from the, uh, as I said, uh, there in case he has to get a signal out of emergency. And it's, it's, there's a direct line. They had that up in, during this mission in case the guys, the, the divers or the crew of the ship or something happened, they could communicate. Uh, it's, it's, so it's, it's um, uh, you know, I don't want to break the hearts of OSINT people because a lot of it is very useful, particularly in, mostly in, in uh, tracking airplane crashes and stuff like that. Um, but when it comes to COVID intelligence operators, they're actually part of the cover. Hmm. Well, National Security Council uh, spokesperson John Kirby, as I'm sure you're aware, has repeatedly uh, denied the United States was involved in the explosions that damaged these pipelines. He told Fox News Sunday, quote, it's a completely false story. There is no truth to it, not a shred of it. It is not true. The United States and no proxies of the United States had anything to do with that. Uh, can you comment directly uh, on that statement? Your, your, your friend, he describes himself as your friend Ray McGovern, recently uh, gave uh, remarks at the UN Security Council and basically said uh, these kind of CAA PR statements aren't to be trusted. What's your response? Well, yeah, you have to identify Ray a little better. Uh, he was in the CIA for many years and he was probably the key guy when we were doing a lot of talks about with the Russians on, um, on, on treaties. 
he spent 27 years in the CIA as an intelligence officer and got to be a level that he was sort of the go-to guy when, when we were negotiating uh, various uh, ABM treaties with the Soviet Union. So he does, he does know a little more than that. John Kirby's a nice guy. I used to work, John was uh, in the Pentagon. Uh, when I was at the New Yorker after 9-11, after I wrote a lot of stories that were heatedly denied uh, by the White House when I was working for the New Yorker. This was in the days of Cheney and Bush. And I always liked John. He's a very good guy. And um, I, I did talk to him about this story long before I wrote it, let him know what I was doing. And he told, you know, uh, it was off the record, so it doesn't matter. But um, he didn't say anything, anything other than, than, uh, than, than what he said publicly, but there was other stuff he talked about. And uh, um, uh, he'll be the first, if you asked him, um, if there were an operation like this, would the spokesman for the joint JC, I mean, the spokesman wouldn't know. Why would you tell them? Mm. Why would you tell a spokesman anything? Why would even internally would you talk about it? This is, I mean. So you think he genuinely <laughs> does not know that the, the, he, he's, he, he's not lying there. He doesn't know. No, no, he's not a liar. He's not, he's asked and he's told, no, nothing happened. Mm. I mean, I, sh I don't know if he's asked or not. I'm sure he has. But why, why would he be told? Why would, right. uh, I think I said very early, the way they run this operation, the people in the field in Norway or wherever they are in the United States are, are isolated. Uh, you, the last thing you want to do with something like this is, you know, you, is uh, uh, telling the principals, uh, uh, can I give you a reason why? In January, they told the principals that they could do something. And within uh, three weeks, both uh, Victoria Newland blabbed about it and said, we'll get it one way or the other. And the president himself said at a briefing on February the 7th, we can take it out. And if they go, we will take it out. I don't know why the press forgets that language, but it horrified the people who were just beginning to get organized on it because it, it just was, to them, it's, it's the most secret thing in the world. And the, the, the undersecretary of state and the president of the United States, are, the word used to me was blabbing about it. You mentioned just a, a minute ago that you know you you have this long history of writing for outlets like uh, the New Yorker. It, did you approach any of the kind of you know mainstream type organizations or, or media outlets you've worked with in the past with this story and try to get it published there? Did they reject it, you, or, or were you just going to do this on your own for Substack? Can you tell us anything about the editorial process? Sure. Um, um, I don't think I could have got the Milai story published now. Things have changed a lot because of Trump. As you know, I'm not, I'm not telling anybody that knows there's Fox News and the New York Post and other papers like that. And then there's the Washington Post and the New York Times. Uh, actually, the, neither one of those papers mentioned my story. It's been out for a couple of weeks. But I'm, I, I'm telling you, I'm getting massacred by calls from overseas on it. I mean, I, I really am. Um, uh, 350, 400 emails today, half of them from overseas news outlets. It's different there. I think the Washington Post, I'm told, I haven't seen it, had a story today for the first time mentioned what I did in the Contra. But there was a, a, a Security Council meeting about this yesterday. Mm -hmm. And um, the New York Times hasn't mentioned it yet. I, I, I just, I, I see what's going on, the polarization of the press that didn't exist. I joined the Times in 72 because, um, and I, I could, I, I got, there was no question about what I could do. It's the, the halcyon days, it's different now. And no, I never thought of approaching either paper because I didn't think they would publish it, I mean, particularly because they'd want to know the source. And um, uh, uh, I always told the editors the source. And um, 
Uh, I got burned once uh, at the New York Times that way. I don't want, I don't like talking about it because the New York Times is still a good newspaper and a lot of fine reporters. I've always been convinced that 90% of the editors, if they were fired, we'd have a much better news organization. <laughs> I, I saw who got promoted as we went along. But um, no, Substack is, is um, I have a, I'm a friend of Matt Taibbi, who's um, got a head of Substack uh, uh, column going. And he was telling me it's much more vibrant and it's much more interesting because uh, I self-publish. I use uh, superb editors. Um, I'm using one of my editors was, uh, I worked for the London Review of Books and a very bright guy named Chris Lorenzen uh, is the editor and he's great. I listen to him and I use as far as possible. Sometimes I can't always get him. I use fact checkers that used to work at the New Yorker when I was there. And at that time, there was no worry about sources. Uh, they knew all my sources. That's really uh, interesting. That's, that's interesting to know because some people have criticized you on the basis that because you're independent, you haven't had that editorial process. You weren't able to say share the source with an editor and have them, you know, double check and confirm and 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 give their own gut check on things. But you're saying that that actually isn't the case. That you're still using the same the same kind of team that you had at these institutional papers, but they're no longer affiliated, even though you're at no, Substack. I'll, you, I'll tell you the biggest difference in a way that uh, that may be the doom for, for good reporting on newspapers. When I was at the New Yorker, for example, I had a big run. At, um, I did the Abu Ghraib story and I, for three three weeks in a row, I was, and the paper was, the magazine would tell me you're doing, it's, they were all happy because Newsstand sales were going up. Newsstand sales of magazines are just about zip now. But they, uh, the newsstand sales are going up. Circulation is growing. And at the end of the year, um, uh, since I was working for a company, um, uh, 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 I, I, I was always a freelancer. I never wanted to be on the staff of the New Yorker just because I didn't like it. But I was, you know, I was making, you know, earning a lot of money. But at the end of the year, I got a case of wine. And I guess the people that run the magazine, because of this, the increase in circulation my stories generated, uh, they might have got a hell of a big bonus. Subsack says, <laughs> I'm self-publishing. I, I didn't do it for money. It's not about money. But it is interesting to me that in the long run, um, uh, this kind of a system, the Subsack was started in part by um, a couple of guys from... Um, New Zealand. One was a, a high-tech uh, writer, a, a journalist on high-tech, and the other one, I guess, was an entrepreneur. I don't know when they started five, six years ago, but I will tell you, it is the most amazing place. The story I put up from nowhere had over a million uh, hits within you know, 20 hours, and I get letters constantly from people saying, what happened to this kind of reporting? There's not much of it. Right now, I, I assure you, um, um, I knew this when I worked at the New York Times. I knew that I was one of the very rare people who actually had people on the inside who were not afraid to talk about things they didn't like. Mm. So what I'm saying is there's something going wrong. And that's something you, it, yeah. I, I've had three or four like that in 50 years. Yeah. And that's just Before we let is. you go, can you tell us anything about what's coming let me next? Go. I'm so happy. To hear that. <laughs> well, we've kept not, we've kept not, you here a long time, and we really appreciate it. Can you preview so, for us so you know, what, your additional reporting on this subject? What'd you say? Uh, what's coming next? What are you working on now? Well, I did a couple more pieces. I just did a piece uh, today, Thursday, yesterday. Um, uh, I think lying about the pipeline in the long run. Um, uh, it, it, uh, this White House can never acknowledge it, but uh, let's assume. It's a big leap for you, maybe, and for a lot of people, maybe, 
uh, let's assume I'm right. Uh, what Joe Biden did in the fall at that time, as I understand it uh, from inside the committee, what I know from my friends inside about the, how the war is going is almost like it's day and night between what you're reading in the newspapers. It's not going well at all. And that there's no way they're gonna, no end in sight of a victory. They may, if they can get a stalemate, maybe, but I don't think that's possible. The Russians have yet to put any of their main forces in. I mean, that's a huge clop. Whether you like Putin or don't like Putin, and most people here really hate Putin. And I have to say, anybody that starts a war, even with some justification, we did encroach NATO on him, and we're promising not to, but anybody that starts a war has to pay, you know, he's gotta, he's, he's, he's gotta own up to that and, you know, at some point you know, in, whether in life or death, uh, you don't start wars, the most bloody, most bloody war in, the, in uh, Europe since uh, World War II. Um, you just, that's not casual, something casually to do. So, but having said, having said that, um, uh, uh, let, let it go at that. I mean, I, 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 I'm not doing this because I, I, I have any, re, you know, I have any reason to have any special feelings for Russia, but I don't think the war is going to, I think this fall is going to be very rough. It's going to make a lot of the reporting that we're seeing not a, a little, you know, a little over-enthusiastic about it. Here's the problem. By killing the pipeline, and there was a pipeline, the second pipeline, the first one, for, Putin had already shut down the first line, pipeline. By killing the second one, he, which is controlled, was sanctioned by Germany. The worry he had in late fall, because I think very much he was aware this this was going to be a slog, S-L-O-G at the very best and very bloody, which we're seeing right now. And the casualties are, they're, they're brutal on both sides, but Ukraine can hardly afford them. Russia can. Big difference. And um, what he did is he said to Germany, now if you decide to change your mind, Germany, you know, Germany because of its role in World War II is always very reluctant to go military. And there was a lot of pressure on Scholl, the, the chancellor, to not support uh, us in the Ukraine. And there was a lot of feeling in NATO that this war wasn't going the well, as well as it should. And, um, and I will tell you right now, um, uh, price of, of electricity, which is uh, the, the, the uh, five times higher now in France, or in France, three or four times for gas in, in Italy, uh, it's already doubling, it's getting higher already in Germany. It's going to be, it's, they'll get through, spring's coming, but next fall is going to be a disaster, and they all know it. And it's hurting the economy even now. The big companies don't have enough gas. They have the largest gas company, a chemical company in the world, BASF, is in Germany. They've been talking to the Chinese about maybe moving some facilities there because they, they don't have enough gas. And they, what they do get, they're paying too much for. Profits go down. Anyway, the upshot is that, that uh, by, by cutting off their pipeline, blowing it up, He's denied the German government a chance to open up the pipeline and keep their people warm and uh, prices and not paying and paying minimal prices for, for heating, not only the rest of last winter, but next winter. And that's not going to stand them well. I'm getting a lot of messages from Europe. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't talk to politicians ever. I never, liked, I never testified before the Congress. 
not to, by the way, I don't see the Democrats in the Senate wanting a, the, an investigation of this. <laughs> Most certainly they? not. In fact, we covered on my radar today uh, in another segment the fact that uh, Hakeem Jeffries, House Minority Leader, was confronted by an activist about whether or not he'd call for some kind of investigation, and he got kind of a non-answer. So I think you're right on money on that one, and we really are so appreciative of all of the time you've been willing to spend with us here today, and we hope you come back uh, to Rising sometime soon and give us an update. This is the longest eight-minute interview I've had this week. <laughs> You're okay, too good guys. to be contained to eight anyway. minutes. Thank you again, Seymour Hirsch. And, and uh, we'll listen, um, uh, I, I, I welcome those questions because, you know, it's just too easy to dismiss things on the source basis. It's much more complicated than that, and as you may or may not know. But anyway, thank you for bringing up the issue. Thank bye you bye, again. Guys. Take care. Thank you. We'll have more rising for you after this. Emily Coors, the foreperson in the special grand jury in Fulton County, Georgia, where Donald Trump is being investigated for alleged 2020 election interference, embarked on a media tour, dropping some hints about who might be indicted. Here she is Wednesday on CNN. It's not a short list. Not a short list. <laughs> More, I mean, when it comes to 75 witnesses, like, is it, it's not, I assume, of course, it's right. not 75 people. Would you characterize it as 20-ish people? I can't say I counted. Coors didn't name names, and she was clear that she doesn't know if any charges will be handed down to Trump and his allies involved, but she was transparent that she hopes something happens. Watch. There was just too much for this to just be, oh, okay, we're good, bye. And if it was just a perjury charge or perjury charges, would that be acceptable to you? That's fine. I will be happy as long as something happens. <laughs> so that was bizarre. <laughs> it was a little bizarre. I don't, I don't think she came off particularly well in these interviews. I, th I think a lot of people would question the wisdom of doing this kind of interview in the first place. I mean, this is kind of the, this is like, I don't know, porn for resistance liberals. The, oh, some, some indictments are coming for Trump. Again, we can just wait until it happens. I don't know why you <laughs> need to make people do this kind of speculation. It sounded like she doesn't actually really know. Uh, so it, again, it's just it's kind of priming the the mainstream media audience, the resistance libs, for that there's going to be some kind of legal consequence for Trump. We've never seen one yet, but uh, but there, that's the fantasy. It's coming. Just wait. Yeah, I mean, it is. It is. If the conversation becomes about this woman and her affect and the perception of bias uh, instead of, you know, the Trump Raffensperger call and him clearly asking him to look for votes and saying that the Dominion voting machines, there, there might be a problem there. And can you find the votes for me? And, and Raffensperger clearly saying that, <laughs> no, you lost. No. <laughs> That's just not how this is. You don't actually have the votes. You know, I think that is the part of the um, kind of the election interference, one six, uh, st stop the steal saga that Democrats on the, are on the best footing for. Mm -hmm. There's an audio tape of Donald Trump trying to coerce a conservative representative in Georgia to change the election results. That's the sweet spot for Democrats. Why there has been a choice to talk about other things that are, I think, less convenient or perhaps to entertain moments like this that open the door to 
perceptions that the system is rigged against Donald Trump? Yeah, show this to yeah, show this to Trump people, show this to Trump supporters, see how they react. I mean, this will make many of them think, and maybe they were going to think it anyway, that it, it gives some credence to their argument that the whole thing is rigged against Trump when, like, the, the jury foreperson seems very, seemed gleeful. I mean, she giggled with excitement at the idea of Trump facing legal consequences. Yeah. I mean, and that could obviously just be because they heard so much evidence mm -hmm. that it seems wrong for Trump to be able to walk away from doing all of the things that we know he did, because, again, we have, right. the, <laughs> we have the, the phone call. Um, without any kind of pushback, sure. with any kind of legal censor, you know, like that that does feel unjust to a lot of people. And this, don't is, want and this is, again, this is not, this is the indictment. So right. this is not, right. not being convicted here, right. whether to bring charges. The, right. the and what's the the famous line that you can uh, indict a ham sandwich exactly yeah you can indict a ham sandwich but of course if you don't indict him then this is a world in which there are absolutely no consequences on likelihood no legal consequences no. there could be electoral consequences in that he's unable to successfully persuade enough of the country to ever vote for him because of the embarrassing things he did in 2020. I mean he's damaged his own January 6th and everything else uh, hurt him. There's no argument that it didn't hurt him. Right. Well, I think a lot of—I mean, a lot of people want us to live in a world where we have legal consequences that would disincentivize a future president from trying to call up uh, state officials and trying to rig elections in their favor. I mean, it is a pretty serious thing to do. And I think if we're all honest with ourselves, regardless of our political affiliations, if we heard that Joe Biden were, was doing this, Barack Obama was doing this, you know, Hillary Clinton was trying to use her influence to persuade um, election officials to rustle up a few more votes for them. That's kind of the I mean, most anti-democratic. She did say it was stolen. She did. But she didn't. There's no videotape of Hillary Clinton trying to persuade someone in a swing state or a, narrow, a state which she narrowly lost. She wasn't she wasn't on the phone with the, the Raffensperger of Michigan saying, come on, rustle up a few more votes for me back in 2016. And if she was, then someone's done a very poor job of getting that tape out. So, I mean, there are meaningful differences here that like it's kind of bizarre to me that this isn't a bigger story. And who even knows what the political affiliation of that woman is? It could be that she's, frankly, a conservative who is disappointed in the anti-democratic behavior I'm of Donald gonna, Trump. I'm going to bet no. But. And, and, and to the extent that there aren't more conservatives who are, frankly, really offended by the anti-democratic behavior of Donald Trump, I don't know that that reflects especially well, well on that constituency. I mean, the, the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, had no appetite for indulging Trump's election fantasies whatsoever and was defiantly reelected. I think the Republican base, I don't think they want to re-adjudicate 2020 whatsoever. They want to move on. Well, what do you have to say then about the whole kerfuffle around the uh, all of the, what, 40,000 hours of footage that is being exclusively released to Tucker mm -hmm. Carlson. We talked about this at length earlier in this week, that there seems to be an effort uh, That's an on accountability and a transparency thing. No, we were talking about earlier this week that there seems to be an effort in the conservative media to do pageantry and, and to kind of change, do narrative building around 1-6. You said that you think the only real reason to want to do this is to dispute some of the narratives that liberals have put out there about how horrible this was and to somehow diminish the claims about how significant that particular incident was, an incident which you agreed was bad and significant and really embarrassing for the Republican Party. So and, and my point when we were having that conversation was, ooh, if I were conservative, if I were Tucker Carlson, I might just want to leave all that below uh, alone 
and relegated to the dustbin of history because it's just not a good look. Let's focus on well, other areas. Well, but these are not contradictory things at all. That that, that Trump. In, engaged in ridiculous behavior, inappropriate behavior, possibly illegal behavior with uh, with the calls in Georgia, and and then also his individual behavior on January 6th, this, the speech he gave repeating the things about the election that were not true, that I do think provoked the spontaneous mob action that took place at the Capitol. Uh, now, the, I, I think the way to hold him accountable for that was what was done, was the trial in the Senate, which he was eventually, he was acquitted, essentially, in the constitutional sense, in the, in, the, in the removal from office sense, oh, well, got to move on. Um, but, you know, mainstream media has continued to, to talk. I mean, we've had, and we had dish, so many committee hearings and everything about, about this day, about what happened in the Capitol. They want to release more footage that undercuts some of that narrative. I think that's fine. I mean, it, it, like, these, can, these things are not mutually contradictive. That we don't want to talk about, well, no, I'm not we saying... don't want to continue talking about Trump's ridiculous attempts to his clumsy and totally unsuccessful feudal attempts to persuade states to I'm saying there's a the contradiction election. between saying Republicans want to move on, Republicans aren't proud of what Donald Trump did uh, mm -hmm. on 1-6 or around the Stop the Steal, or that some meaningful per percentage of Republicans are more moderate and are, find all of that to be distasteful. I think there's a tension between that and what some at least conservative media figures are doing, which is to choose to to stay in that place and to continue to make that story and to breathe new life in it because of this reporting on the on the on the. Well, I mean, I, I'm not a Republican operative, so I, I'm not thinking it from it, thinking about it from a oh, is this actually bad for the Republican Party's futures? Because look, I think people should have access to this footage. I think it's a from as a as a journalist, I'm interested in it, and I think everybody should have it. And it's a shame that uh, Democrats didn't <laughs> didn't see fit to just kind of give that out when they had control of the House. Right. Well, I mean, their argument is that right. I mean, it, safety I, I, is look, threatened. I, I think that there safety. probably is an equation that has to be done between the news news value of it. If it's forty thousand, most of these forty thousand hours are going to be pictures of blank hallways. So I think that number can can imply that there's a richness of content that is unlikely to be there. Uh, moreover, we oh, did get we'll hours and out. hours. Yeah, we'll, we'll find out. We got hours and hours of footage already that the Democrats charted us through for weeks and weeks of uh, impeachment hearings and the, and the like. So we have seen a lot. So it, it remains to be seen whether or not they did made an accurate calcula calculation between risk of showing evacuation routes and things like that and conveying newsworthy information or disclosing newsworthy information. It remains true, I believe. That this, you know, if I were a Republican, I would be wanting to focus on the current administration's failures in places like East Palestine, the um, uh, march to war that is bipartisan but is being led by Democrats right now at the same time that any number of nat uh, national disasters are ongoing. That That is much sure footing. I, and fine. But aren't, aren't you curious about... I mean, you're someone who's very critical of the police, some police behavior. I'm critical of some police behavior. Um, maybe from this footage, we can learn more about how the police behave themselves, both from a maybe they were incompetent and unprepared for this, and maybe the footage helps shine light on that. Maybe they were, I'm sure some in critical of police circles think maybe they were they were accomplices to the people breaking in. Maybe they let them do it. Maybe they, there was all 
you know, everybody <laughs> getting together and loving yeah, Trump, and I, Trump has some support I, among the I police. Personally Maybe there are things to know about it. For sure, but I'm a leftist, so none of that reflects poorly on me. I'm both critical of the police mm -hmm. and critical of the one sixers and critical of Democrats who decided to fund the police harder after one six and critical of their focus on one six when there were other domestic issues and also critical of Republicans who've been focused on. Mm -hmm. So there's no downside for me as an individual in focusing on these issues, but what I'm asking is whether or not from a Republican kind of media and party perspective, whether or not it behooves them to stay on this issue, where there are a lot more landmines for them in their narratives, at the same time that I think that for Democrats also, there were obviously potential landmines for them to have to navigate, and they've made their choices already strategically. That's all I'm asking, if the, the, we'll if the net value of this. But also, if all of this, and look at what we've been discussing, is a distraction from this fundamental issue, and this is the Democratic issue that they have to contend with. If it's a distraction from the fundamental question of what Donald Trump did in the days after the election, when he was engaging in, I think, what can objectively be described as election interference, rhetorically, even if legally it doesn't meet whatever the standard is. Sure. And I think he should not be president again, and people should not select him to be the Republican nominee, and people should not vote for him. I, I think that is the proper consequence of the bad things that he did, whether it meets some kind of legal statute. Again, I, I guess we'll see. Now, Again, the ham sandwich thing, so it, he could very well be indicted, and that could not mean there's actually any underlying criminality or guilt. That will have to be a question that will be settled. And we'll I've made yeah. myself pretty hungry for lunch. <laughs> All right, well, maybe we can get Donald Trump to send you some McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice reference. All right, we'll be right after this. Former CNN executive and media critic Steve Krakauer is out with a new book, Uncovered, How the Media Got Cozy with Power, Abandoned Its Principles, and Lost the People. A great title. According to Steve, the fourth estate is supposed to be a conduit to the people and a check on power. Instead, we have a bunch of geographically isolated, introspection-free, cozy with power, egomaniacal journalists thirsty for elite approval. Steve Krakauer joins us now to expand on his writing. Welcome to Rising, Steve. Hey, great to be back with you guys. Yeah, great to have you. Uh, tell us a little bit more about what the book gets into. Yeah, I, I've really tried to position Uncovered as a non-ideological look at the problems in the media over the last five to seven years. I'm not a particularly ideological person either. Someone who worked at CNN, as you mentioned, uh, it's changed a lot in the in the it really just within years after I left. But I don't want to destroy the media. I, I'm, I'm, I like independent media upstarts, and I like a strong institutional press. But right now, we have a press that is distrusted uh, for good reason by a, the large majority of the country, not just the right, but independents and even the left as well. So I've diagnosed what I believe are five large problems with the press from coziness with power, geographic bias, Twitter loosely uh, and try to find some solutions because I, I do think that we need a press that's that is trusted by the media I mean, by, the, by the public and we don't have that right now and that's really a disservice to the audience well let's dig into these five um, uh, you know kind of motives uh, problems here that you've identified you know the the coastal bias I think is obvious to explain the idea that uh, 
you know, journalists are all too online and uh, have a disproportionate sense of the issues that matter, the stories that matter to people, and kind of just talking about each other a lot. I think that's easy to understand. But one one critique that we've made uh, quite a bit here, and that a lot of leftists have made of liberal media, so there isn't real ideological diversity diversity there. That there is this kind of uh, never Trump Republican that's not really reflected in in the mainstream media. There are these sanitized versions of uh, the left um, who aren't really reflecting what real left think. And so the, there's basically no one on the TV screen that's representing anybody's politics, much less the geographical center of the country. Uh, and I wonder if you can speak to that and whether you have any insights as a, as a former insider of how these booking decisions get made, if there's ever any conversation about trying to mimic some of the energy that's happening on the online media sphere. You know, what are, are, do people even know that that's a, a problem that people outside uh, corporate media have identified? 100%. I think this is a huge problem, and I think it, it manifests in, in two ways. I'll, I'll, I'll give you, first of all, I think that there is, it does speak to that geographic bias, I think, because most of the country, the, the political opinions, the, the policy opinions of the average citizen are messy, are complicated. They are not neatly fit into what you see from pundits yelling at each other on cable news. And there's a reason for that. It's because the, what, who populates the green rooms of these establishment media organizations are people, as you mentioned, that doesn't matter really what party they are. They're all roughly the, the general blandness, sameness of, of just this corporate establishment, uh, what the, the sort of consensus opinion out there. Uh, totally boring and predictable. So, so I do think that's a big problem. And I will say, as they lose the power, they feel that power slipping beneath their feet, thanks to places like YouTube, thanks to places like Substack and podcasts, they are actually starting to to try to have the pendulum swing in the other direction because they they can really feel the power that they're losing. But I also do think it manifests in another way because in chapter eight, I get into uh, what happened with Bernie Sanders in 2020, which I, I think that Bernie Sanders was sort of screwed over in 2016 by the political establishment. But in 2020, it was as much the media from the left, MSNBC, CNN to a lesser extent, that galvanized behind Joe Biden when it really seemed after Nevada, like Bernie Sanders was the clear front runner to the nomination they got behind it and and everyone people that are that are sort of liberal darlings joy reed from msnbc i document in the book they they went and they turned against bernie sanders and his supporters that's coming from the left media so it's not easy to just dismiss all of what what's wrong with the press as a political bias towards you know against republicans it's mm -hmm. much more complicated than that and it's deeper and i do think it really boils down to institutional power that they're trying to cling on to I read in uh, Mediaite uh, just the other day a report that was based on, I think, some, some new information in your book about the, quote, Maoist struggle session that took place in the New York Times over the former editorial page editor running the, Tom, the infamous Tom Cotton uh, op-ed about uh, sending in the National Guard or whoever it was. Can you uh, share some of your reporting on that episode with our audience? Yeah, this was a really, a really alarming one. I, I remember in June of 2020 when this happened, feeling like this was a real inflection point. This is something fundamental had shifted there, and that's why in chapter 10 I spent so much time on it. Uh, and and I will mention, you know, the the mediaite and and some of the other places that have picked up on this. Everyone is on the record in the book. Uh, there's no anonymous sources. So this was uh, a, a former New York Times employee, an opinion writer, who's now at New York Magazine, who shared in very deep detail exactly what was going on internally at the New York Times, we got to see what played out externally on Twitter, the, the way that the in New York Times staffers, 
galvanized other activists on Twitter to force out an opinion editor for daring to run a column by a United States senator. Now, you can disagree with the column. You can say it's a terrible column. This is horrible. But to push out to actually get the New York Times you know, executives to take this sort of extreme action, that's alarming. And then the other side of what we see is this idea that I get that activists might be mad about the New York Times running this op-ed, but journalists, they should be the ones who are for free expression, for free speech, for an, an exchange of ideas, and especially journalists at the New York Times. Instead, we saw what are supposedly, you know, objective, fair journalists pushing back at the idea of even running speech, even running a column from a United States senator. That was really alarming. And, and I do think that was a real moment where we saw, we, we step back and say, this is where the media is right now. This is who, who populates these newsrooms right now. And that's, that's a problem for the public. Yeah, we're seeing this play out right now with the New York Times with a controversy on um, the letters objecting to the coverage of trans issues and then the subsequent publishing of an article in defense of um, J.K. Rowling, who has been a, crit a critic of, of some of these um, issues. And then the, the, the New York Times Union basically being torn between is its role to protect the um, kind of the employment interests of reporters who have a right and investment in freedom and reporting on things like a defense of J.K. Rowling or these other reporters who, yes, are using um, kind of Twitter outrage and um, uh, activist uh, groups that are explicitly have an agenda, which they're, of course, allowed to have, like GLAAD, um, right. to leverage editorial decisions that um, they would prefer to be made. And it's, it's, an, it's an ongoing and very difficult issue, and I'm, I'm glad that you get into that somewhat in your, in your book. i got to ask you, just from a basic kind of market financial perspective, it's always been very curious to me that if you have, um, you know, an insurgent rise of something in, in politics, like the Bernie Sanders movement, a left movement, an obvious interest by about 30 percent of the country in a different kind of politics, the same way that you had this insurgent Trump interest, uh, interest in Donald Trump, and you had, you know, you, there's an interest in reporting on rural communities and going to different parts of America and a lot of reporting on what motivates a Trump voter that we saw back in 2016. It doesn't seem like there is a business response from a lot of these institutions to say, okay, let's just get one, uh, let's get one, uh, you know, right. DSA member on the panel. Let's get one uh, Green Party. Let's get one socialist from New York. Let's get Jabari Brisport on a panel occasionally, just because we know it'll get people to tune in and we can sell ad dollars. Just even on that simple business metric, it seems like a decision is being made that something is motivating them other than the market. Something is motivating them to never try to have an actual Trump supporter instead of a never Trump supporter or an actual leftist audit instead of um, a kind of a, a Sam Bateman freed orbit type right. of person who could just talk about effective altruism or something like that. What's going on there? I, I think that there are, are, are several factors, but I do think that in general, large giant media organizations are like you know are like tankers. It takes them a while to to make a turn, and and for a very long time, until fairly recently, the business model of places like a CNN or I write about ESPN in the book as another example of this. They were pretty solid, and then suddenly. Things have shifted rapidly, and and now it's like, well, what are we going to do now? Now we have to actually do something about it. So I do think that maybe the financial incentives for a very long time they just were very complacent in their business model. Well, now that business model has fundamentally changed. Now they are going to get to get panicked, and if they were smart, they would make those sorts of of shifts because I do think that there is a hundred percent 
a market for it. Now, the other the other factor of this is the incentive structure. You've got the loudest voices on Twitter. And, and listen, I spent a lot of time on Twitter too much. I, I wish I didn't. <laughs> but I, I know the feeling of when a few hundred people are praising you, it just can feel like a drug. And when 50 people start yelling at you, it can really feel like the walls are cl closing in. Now, imagine that in newsrooms. And I, I speak to Sharon Waxman, for example, of The Wrap, who describes her own reporters moving away from stories or covering stories differently or co not covering them at all because of the reaction they get or they might get from Twitter. So that's a huge problem. You have places that are making business decisions based on the cultural pushback that they might get from, from places like Twitter. That's that's a real problem. And, and we need strong executives, strong institutional journalists to say, we, we don't care about that. We, we need to, to, to serve the audience and not serve the, the loudest voices on social media. One last thing. I just wanted to ask, we were missed not to ask about this emerging story about uh, these communications that have come out uh, in the wake of this Dominion libel lawsuit that show that some Fox News reporters seem to have had a kind of a pu public opinion and a private opinion about some of their own guests, not really finding them to be credible, having them on anyway. And then when some other Fox reporters were publicly pushing back against um, how some of the Fox News reporting was characterized, basically pushing back against election denialism, there was uh, Tucker Carlson, there's a, a, a message, a, a, an email showing that he called for the other Fox reporters to be fired because it hurt their brand to be coming out as so kind of publicly and aggressively anti-Trump. You know, where do you put that kind of thing in the context of the public distrust of the media? And do you think that there is any fallout? Will there be any fallout for the Fox viewer who might be confused about why there is this kind of public-private positioning happening there? I think it's interesting. I think anytime you start to read the text messages of very powerful people, uh, it, it's it's a juicy story, and, and I, I get that 100%. I do think that what's interesting about that story is that the, the Dominion lawsuit itself was so much about people like Lou Dobbs or even Janine Pirro, and you know, hundreds of their text their, of their uh, their social media posts were put out there as their the basis for their lawsuit. Well, Lou Dobbs was fired by Fox as a result of this lawsuit. Mm -hmm. the, the people that let, that you see the text messages from, Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, yes, they may have, have had some of these guests on, but they were not the loudest voices saying this is a legitimate story either. Now, there is a bias of omission, which I think is, is very real, is what, why do you not say what you're maybe saying behind the scenes? But I think that also gets to another factor here, which is that I, I do think that Trump was leading this charge and was spinning his own people, his own supporters. And Fox, there is a business incentive to say, look, we can't, it's, it's, these people really care about this. These people really believe it. And we have to tread lightly with it. We, we, we can't just say that this that Sidney Powell, the Kraken, is legitimate. But we can't just sit there and, and just call her out and say that she's a fraud. Although I will say Tucker Carlson did do that on November 19th. So I think it was a very touchy spot. I, 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 this, was a, this was a moment right after that 2020 election that it was really perilous for a place like Fox. And they were able to sustain. They were able to survive. I don't think this will hurt them. But I do think it's absolutely interesting. And it is telling. And we, we need a transparent press. And this is just another example of, of the, the, the lots of complicated decisions that, that have to go into what you see on the air, what you see in, in print. Mm. Steve Krakauer, thank you so much for joining us. The book is Uncovered, How the Media Got Cozy with Power, Abandoned Its Principles, and Lost the People. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for joining Appreciate us. Appreciate it. Thank you. More Rising right after this.
Fox News host Tucker Carlson opened his primetime program on Wednesday night, taking a direct jab at GOP presidential candidate Nikki Haley. Let's watch. She may be running to be the Republican nominee, but she is fundamentally indistinguishable from the neoliberal donor base of the Democratic Party. Nikki Haley believes in collective racial guilt. She thinks Ukraine's borders are more important than our own, far more important. She believes identity politics is our future. Vote for me because I'm a woman, she says. That's her pitch. In his monologue, Carlson highlighted CNN host Don Lemon's now infamous not-in-her-prime insult of Nikki Haley, but he seemed to back Lemon on this, saying, quote, But to be fair to Don Lemon, Nikki Haley seemed like perfectly fair game. She's a Republican presidential candidate, so savage her for all you want. Oh, but no, because in fact, in all the ways that matter, Nikki Haley is a member in good standing of the most protected class of all, upper-income liberal white ladies with fashionable political views. Tucker Carlson is not the only conservative media personality to jump to Lemon's defense. As we pointed out in yesterday's show, Candace Owens did as well. So, you know, this is an example of, I, I think, what I was, I was telling you, that she is actually not super popular with uh, where the conservative movement is now, which includes people like Candace Owens and Tucker Carlson, who, who do have at least some fingers on the pulse of what a lot of Republican primary voters want, what conservatives believe in. Um, she is, she's past her prime, not in terms of her age or anything of that nature, but in terms of her views, which are in line with the Bush-era aughts version of the Republican Party, a version of the Republican Party that has now, is not part of the Republican Party anymore, and is to some degree, and I take Tucker's point on this, he's correct, is to some degree part of the Demo more closely associated with the Democratic Party in terms of foreign policy uh, mm -hmm. in particular. Uh, so she, maybe she, she's running for the, to be president for the wrong party. Because her main, her main views are neoconservative views. That's her distinguishing factor. So I'm really interested in this realignment that's happening with identity politics in the Republican Party right now. I don't know about the collective racial guilt thing. I don't know what he means by that. but Yeah, I don't... I, I, many Democrats have been rightly criticized for saying that Nikki, some version of Nikki Haley isn't really a woman of color. Nikki Haley is ashamed of her identity, and that's why she goes by Nikki, even though it's her name, um, uh, name that she's gone by for, for many years. Uh, that, you know, and, and I, members of the, women of the view have said this kind of thing, and I think that they've been rightly criticized for it by conservatives, who then kind of are appropriating a version of identity politics that the liberals have been doing for a long time, which says that we're proud of the diversity of our party. It does, it's good for the optics of the Republicans as a kind of a white male party with white male interest to have diversity. There was a lot of celebration at the RNC back in 2020 about how it was very diverse and frankly, I think more diverse than the DNC was, uh, the, the, the convention um, before the, the general election. And so you have one part of the party that is clearly invested in the idea of using identity to shield substantive criticisms of the of the Republican Party's racial politics, the same way the Democratic Party has used identity politics to shield its own racial politics. And another part of the party that, because it's coming in the vessel of Nikki Haley, whose substantive politics are antagonistic to the more kind of populist part of the, Demo uh, the Republican Party, as you've mentioned, are now getting pushback for having exploited identity politics. So when one party, you're having people who are on both sides of this equation. And it's fascinating to watch, because I, I have seen even Candace Owens make identity politics arguments where she's been accused of, let's say, 
anti-Semitism because of her association with and defense of Kanye West, she'll turn and say, oh, but I'm associated with PragerU. I work for PragerU and my, all my best friends are Jewish, right? And the lack of consistency here, to me, is a kind of a vulnerability. It's a kind of a weakness. And I think that leaning too hard on identity hurts Democrats when they are unable to back it up with substantive benefits for the communities in question and substantive politics outside of that identity lens. And seeing Demo uh, Republicans, including Nikki Haley, fumble the bag with this particular line of attack, is the, it's, it's really interesting to watch. Yeah. But again, I think it's primarily about her views and her views just not being a solid fit. Yeah, but Republican Tucker Carlson Party. isn't just focusing on her views. People are mad about this. I mean, he this. talked about, he brought out Ukraine. Yeah, but he's they also talk about this high heel stuff. She keeps bringing up well, the high heels in her speeches. I mean, who They're mad at that? her. He says that she, she, she basically has an identity of interest with rich white women. Like, he didn't have to say that. Like, there's there's a clear part of this that they're irritated with well, but, her branding as. But there I think he's impugning the views of a certain kind of liberal white woman. Who used to be well, part of the? What does that have to do with Nikki Haley, who's who's neither liberal nor white? It's like a it's like a Trump resistance kind of thing. It's it's a th that is again so hawkish on foreign policy and only really welcome in the Democratic Party, not welcome among Republican primary voters. Yeah, I I, I completely understand and agree with the substantive political criticism of Nikki Haley, but it is very clear that the Republicans are also trying to decide how they feel about some of these identity issues, and it wouldn't surprise me that you know, a year or, or a year and change from now, when the Republican candidate is secured mm -hmm. and we're talking about VP choices, there's suddenly a very robust conversation about how good people like Nikki Haley are for the VP ticket because of the same identity issues that some people in the Republican Party are criticizing right now. I don't think so, because it's going to be Tim Scott. <laughs> it's still going to be I those know, issues. I'm, that's <laughs> why I'm joking about it. But that's, uh, I mean, that's the point. Yeah. Is it going to be another white guy paired up against the likely white male Republican candidate, or do Republican voters also feel that broader social pressure, even if it's only in a defensive way, mm -hmm. to get someone else on the ticket to make them look, for lack of a better word, like they are woke too? <laughs> I don't know if that's the same thing, but I mean, I, sure, do, yes, do, do Republicans cynically engage in some level of identity politicking? I guess. I mean, they do it to such a lesser degree, though, than the Democrats. It doesn't seem worth getting all upset about, but. I'm not all upset. I'm just pointing out that they're clearly struggling with how to work through this because there's some obvious hypocrisy here. And we'll see, I, I'm very, very, very interested to see how this plays out um, once the VP choices start to come down the pike. I wish I had some of the reporting now that was coming out around um, the Republican National Convention in 2020, because it was genuinely, sincerely diverse. And there was a lot of criticism of the, of, um, the DNC not being as diverse and also excluding particular people like AOC way? was added to the panel very last. In terms of who's speaking? In terms of who was speaking. And the people who spoke were also, they directly referenced mm -hmm. their racial identity or gender identity as a look at us, we're diverse too sort of a way. It was Eva very Eva was the host though. Lost <laughs> how much diversity Oh, with the DNC one? Right. No, I'm saying the, the RNC at the, the RNC members were like, look how diverse yeah. we are. Um, in a way that I think was one responsive to the George Floyd protests, which were ongoing at the time. Uh, and two, you know, it's obviously defensive. I'm not saying that they mm -hmm. invented this 
strategy, mm -hmm. but they are playing into it. They're, you know, the idea that they're like anti-woke and proudly who they are and never feeling any of these pressures and defiantly doing, do, you know, doing it how they want to do it is belied by the clear programming choices that they've made and potentially, and we'll see the kind of VP choices that the eventual Republican nominee ends up making. Mm. All right. Well, that's it for us this week. Have a wonderful weekend and we'll see you back here on Monday. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any special weekend content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you later. Bye-bye.